0: Everyone back again. Now we're on episode nine of Marx's Capital, volume three. And this is going to cover the end of chapter of part six. So, starting on chapter 46, and we're going to work up beyond part seven. Unfortunately, that's just the way this one worked out. I did my best to have everything end neatly at the end of parts, but I couldn't really get around it here. This is going to work all the way up to chapter 49. So we're going to cover here chapters 46, 47, and 48, excluding 49. And then in the last episode next time, we're going to start from chapter 49. So that'll put us beyond part six into part seven, which is titled The Revenues and Their Sources. And that's going to begin with chapter 48. So I'm sure you'll be able to figure it out uh, how it's arranged here. Now, before jumping into it, Again, if you've made it this far, I really want to applaud you. You're helping me out. I'm taking a big hit on the algorithm, of course, but that's fine. It's about the ideas. Uh, If you want to help me out, sharing this would help out a lot. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure to do that. Uh, If you want, you can um, find links for other ways to follow me in the description, like on Instagram or Twitter if you're into that at all. And yeah, let's... uh, Begin the penultimate episode I'm going to do on marx's capital Volume three, which i I seriously considered ending this channel after I'd done uh all this political economy stuff <laughs> because it was it's been it's thousands of pages um and however many pages of notes, probably two hundred pages of notes but there's a little peek into my own view of this for anyone who's made it this far. But we're gonna start here from chapter 46, which is right at the end of part six. So chapter 46 titled Rent of Buildings, Rent of Mines, and Price of Land. And after I got done recording the last episode, I started to think about the relationship between capitalists and landowners today, not in the strict way of landowners owning land or owning property, but I was thinking about this podcast or this YouTube channel and I was viewing myself as like a farmer and the landlord, the landowner, was the people were the people who owned like YouTube or in the case of the podcast platform, I'm on Podbean and I'm, this isn't being sponsored for naming that just so you know, uh, but it happens to be on Podbean. And so I produce something that I, I give up for free, but it earns me some revenue through ads. Now, of course, I'm not a, I'm not a capitalist. I don't have wage, <laughs> wage um, earners. I'm not, I'm not employing people, and I'm not transforming the money I earn in a way to make me more money. I am just providing a service, but part of what I earn is scraped off and given to the person who owns the platform that I am on, uh, either Podbean or YouTube. And so in that case, we see the continuation, and this would certainly apply more to bigger bigger podcasts who, who, that aren't just run by and worked on by a single person, where they do have employees like, I don't know, Parcast or iHeartRadio, whatever, that have a bunch of employees that are paid wages with a CEO, with a, with a, for lack of a better word, a capitalist who is earning money and then giving some of their money that they earn some of their capital to the landlord, the platform uh, that they are seated on, that they are taking a space, a, a chunk from. Anyways, that thought just came to me as I finished the last episodes. So, yeah, now seriously, let's look at chapter 46 here, the rent of buildings, rent of mines, and the price of land. So the same laws apply with these cases too, as with the previous ones. Like with best, the best land yielding rent, uh whereas the worst land yields no rent but sets the prices so like if you have um a building like a series of buildings the worst buildings are not going to yield rent same with mines same with, as as I've already said where he equates agriculture or everything that he talks about in terms of farming and owning the land he says the same applies to mining so the same laws apply to these cases in that there is a a kind of vampire landowner who forces rent to be paid essentially for them to do nothing. And, you know, you might say, oh, well, maybe they worked to earn that land. Like, they worked really hard, they earned enough money, they bought some land and are using that to make more money. And I, I don't think that there's a justification for that. Uh, but if somebody were to go so far as to say that, I think it would be pretty easy to counter it by saying that the most wealthy people don't actually attain their position because they worked hard. If that were the case, then, uh, you know, single mothers working like three or four jobs would be millionaires. There's no real direct equation between the amount of work done or the intensity of that work and the amount of wealth that you receive. In a lot of cases, it's just nepotism. That is, people just inherit land from past generations and then use that land to earn them even more money that they didn't pay for, they didn't work to get, yet it is earning them more money. Now here he gives some principles about the price of land. And he gives, us, he gives us two. And they are that the price may go up without an increase in rent, or the price of land goes up because rent goes up. So let's take the first one, where the price of land may go up without an increase in rent. So if there's a fall in the rate of interest so that, in his words, rent is sold more dearly, and so capitalized rent, the price of land increases. Now, this is kind of a listening test. That seems to be totally contradictory to the principle he gives us. Because the principle is that the price may go up without an increase in rent. But the quote I just read reads, rent is sold more dearly. And so I'm reading this to try to gauge if anyone has any idea as to how to properly explain that Uh, but he provides another possible uh, situation where the price may go up without an increase in rent and that is maybe because of a growth in the interest on the capital incorporated into the land and who knows maybe there's like a contractual binding that if a capitalist or a farmer is working on the land they've installed new machines maybe new infrastructure And so technically, the price of that land has gone up. The rent, however, has not in that they are still bound by the same contract. Now, the other possibility, and this one makes more sense, is that the price of land goes up because the rent goes up. So this might be a case where the rent has gone up because the price of goods that have been produced has gone up or new lands of better quality might be found. But it's interesting when you consider the price of land going up in relationship or proportionately to the amount of capital invested. Because if there's more capital invested, it's going to be possible to perhaps get rid of some of the laborers you have on that land because you have better machines that are able to work faster, you can get rid of some workers, and, or just, you know, this is just automation. And so, ostensibly, the price of goods can come down because the capital is selling, want to be able to sell their products cheaper than their competitors to undercut them. However, in that case, because the prices of goods have come down, the price of land has gone up, which is just an interesting, it, it, in my mind, it makes perfect sense, uh, but maybe it's something that's not totally apparent to people where if the price of commodities comes down as a result of improved means of producing them, then that would mean likely that the price of land will go up but again there are so many factors to consider here like if the price of goods has come down just because there's been um I don't know deflation and that signals that the price of everything at the same time has come down that likely will mean that the rent of, uh, the price of land will also come down so it's you know it's just important to know that A rise in the price of land does not necessarily mean a rise in the price of rent. However, a rise in rent would likely mean a rise in the price of land, but this won't necessarily follow with a rise in the price of products. In fact, it might be the other way around because products have gotten cheaper, the price of land has gone higher because of better infrastructure that has been put on those lands in order to produce those products, making the land more valuable, making the products cheaper that puts us here into chapter 47, the genesis or the origin of capitalist ground rent. So here he considers how it's possible to have surplus value or an excess product that is uh, sold through um, or having been made by extracting surplus value from workers, so exploitation, how that is possible uh, and can be transformed into rent in a single industry, that is in agriculture. Now, some other theories were just simply dead wrong about this. So, the physiocrats, for example, who believed that all value originates from the land. So, the value of any good is going to be determined by how much that good can sell for to buy you the necessities that come from the land, which is going to be different in each place. So, in probably central, northern central Europe, it'll probably be corn. So how much corn can you get for a shoe? That's going to be the value of this shoe, where these necessities serve as a kind of universal determinant of what value is. Now, while to some extent that's right, whereas like all value originates from living things like real living labor or from, agri- from, from the earth that is living and that it produces things that are alive that people can eat uh, like crops the problem with this idea is that it erases the seminal place that labor holds in creating value so once we can acknowledge this we can understand how value can be created in other industries outside of agriculture like in a factory like in shoemaking. Now, what Engels will show, and we'll get into this more in the next episode, is that under capitalism, there is less of an attachment to labor as value uh, as in previous economic systems, but we'll we'll get into that. In any case, capitalists know this, whether they know it consciously or unconsciously. They know that they they always need labor because they're able to actually extract surplus from that labor more so in fact that's the only way they can extract surplus they can't do it from machines or raw materials and they need labor to sell uh, to have a base upon a base of people to which they are allowed to sell products now other economists who aren't physiocrats who don't locate all value to the earth look upon rent as just the same thing that has always existed across all economic systems that resembles the process of giving some amount of money or some kind of tribute to a landowner. So like under feudalism, a serf would have to give some of the product that they make that they uh, on the land that they're working on that belongs to the Lord, they would have to give some of that to the Lord. Now while it is important, and this is, this is also something that Engels picks up on in the, the supplementary chapter, While it is important to recognize that that is a form of exploitation, of of course it is, very much like slavery at the same time and before it is a form of exploitation, what is different is that it is the extraction of, under capitalism, there's the extraction of surplus value that is, I guess, hidden in the fact that people are paid wages. And coupled with that is the idea that people are free to go and work somewhere and are paid a wage. And they are ostensibly free to go find work somewhere else if they can find a better salary, just lending to the idea that the wage is a direct representation of their value, of the value that they are creating that the capitalist will then sell in terms of a product. Whereas in in slavery or uh, under feudalism, people can't just leave and go somewhere else. They were directly bound by law to these people. And so that, that did not allow the crystallization or the formation of a large scale industry because people were forced into a kind of a forced servitude. They didn't have money, they didn't have wealth that they could use to buy products. And so there was no real incentive or possibility for industry to form because there wouldn't be a, a population to sell products to. So he writes then that rent, under capitalism, and this is really its special quality under capitalism, rent is a form in which unpaid surplus labor is expressed. Now, as I've already intimated, in previous social and economic arrangements, there was something resembling rent, like with feudalism, like I mentioned with the serf, giving part of their what they work on on the serf's land to the landlord, to the landowner, to the lord. And so to qualify the difference, like I mentioned earlier, what is different is that under feudalism, people don't have the option to leave or go find another job. They are kind of forced to be there. Whereas with wage labor, there is the idea, and this, you know, we certainly get this in Adam Smith and David Ricardo, that workers are just free to move around and go follow um follow the money they are free to do that and they celebrate this of course but it was kind of a big illusion but nevertheless marx uh lends some credence to that idea at least in drawing a distinction between this kind of rent this kind of labor and those of previous systems now here he adds another term to think about this thing called rent under capitalism versus other systems where he qualifies that this is what he what he calls money rent because in other systems under feudalism let's say you were making crops you were making corn growing corn you would be giving some of that crop to the lord whereas under capitalism these people these these farmers earn money that they can give as a universal equivalent to the lord that can spend it however they like that is they aren't getting a product that they aren't going to be that they're only going to be able to use as that product. They are getting something that will allow them to get anything else. Now, another important distinction between feudalism and laboring under capitalism, or uh, being like a farmer under capitalism, is that under feudalism, your profit would be determined after paying your uh, what you what your dues to the lord. So if you happen to have anything extra, there was probably no market for you to actually sell it, but that's where it would exist. It would exist after paying what you owed the Lord. Under capitalism, however, you earn a profit as a farmer, and then out of that profit, which is, it comes from the surplus value you've extracted from your workers, and can then be transformed into rent. So of course, before capitalism and even during capitalism, there were farmers that just work on their own land. They own their own plot of land. They just work on that land and they earn some money for it. Now, that's something today that I think many people, certainly uh, traditionalist, conservative people like to say about farmers today, where farmers are just like hardworking people. They're just earning their own money. They want to be left alone. But what often gets forgotten in those narratives is that much of that land is owned by either the bank the state to which the people have to be paying part of what they earn to these organizations in most cases of course the bank that really owns the land so they are just farmers they're borrowing land and part of what they earn has to go to these interest-seeking or rent-seeking enterprises most uh, notably banks and like in our discussion of interest-bearing capital under capitalism Because there's just such a change in logic about what land means and how land under capitalism starts to be associated with ownership, it becomes very difficult for anyone to just acquire land because you have to go through various contractual things. You have to uh, pay out what is often a lot of money in order to actually acquire that land which necessitates as capitalism progresses and as we've said because land prices tend to go up as commodities come down this necessitates people to have to go to uh, lenders like banks in order to actually acquire any land and because this is just so it is so all pervasive it has become naturalized and so many people think that they own their house or own their their land, when in fact they are just borrowing it from a bank that owns that. So in the early stages of capitalist development, when there were still people who owned their own land, worked on the land, maybe they earned a little extra profit that they were able to sell uh, to earn a little extra money, whatever, these people began to disappear because anything that they would make would be so much easier to acquire by just going to the market because things have gotten so cheap and buying it there. So on its face, it seems like, oh, well, that that's fantastic. But to celebrate that is to ignore the ways that those products have been brought to the market through the exploitation of other labor. And it's also to ignore the way that in the long term, what this is going to mean is like a, a brain drain or a, uh, there's a word in French for this, but it's like, a, a lessening of knowledge, or a reduction of knowledge that people have about how to actually grow their own crops, how to be sustainable, how to uh, work the land, and it would be wrong. And I've I know I'm, I've said this many times. Marx and Engels aren't saying we need to go back to some kind of pre-capitalist relations. That would be totally wrong because they're very clear that though that wasn't uh, an idyllic time, there were many issues there. There were there was like just uh, ruling dynasties, or just uh, religious superstition, or uh, I guess total submission to government authority in its early stages, total submission to uh, any kind of rule. And they don't like that. They wanna think of a better future. And one of the other things that Marx calls our attention to is that even in these early capitalist farmers, or among them, or pre-capitalist farming situations, There would often still be an attachment of value to the land so this isn't exclusive to capitalism and of course there are so many other instances beforehand when land would be sold to to somebody else before capitalism so it's not specific to it it just intensifies under capitalism and so the price of land would in some cases even be factored into products that may have been made on that land even if it was you know just a few products being made And Marx says that a value to the land can really only be factored into a product or into products in two cases, where the price of goods is above the price of production, and if there's just a monopoly price. However, these things can only occur when production on land far exceeds the drive to supply for producer and has surplus value as its aim. So the goal is not only to supply for a need, but to actually go beyond that need to create an abundance in order to create, to um, acquire more wealth, which can be translated into more capital. So in both cases here, both with with just small proprietors of land who own their own land, like little farmers or peasant farmers who own their own, own land and large scale industry, both of these systems, both of these possibilities stand in opposition to what Marx calls a rational agriculture, which is, again, one of those moments in which he describes what a post-capitalist world could look like. So small-scale subsistence farming, or agriculture, lacks knowledge and resources to effectively use the Earth's resources for greater good. Whereas, and, and additionally, large-scale agriculture uses its knowledge, its efficiency, and its resources only to further exploit the earth with no intent of improving the social conditions. So I think that this is a pretty good description of the ways in which Marx and Engels celebrate capitalism and what it offers, while also acknowledging how oppressive it is. So they recognize that under capitalism comes an explosion of knowledge in, in science, in rationality, in uh, efficiency in how best to actually grow crops the most efficiently now if those knowledges were transformed into a way to improve society to supply the necessities for people and beyond that would be an example of what he gives us here like a rational agriculture and if you think of the the work day in north america pretty standard eight hour day and for many people it's a lot more than that but let's say it's just eight hours this has been this has remained pretty consistent but the means by which to actually furnish this society with uh, what we need has improved drastically through automation so automation is approached as a way to earn more profit whereas it could be approached as a way to actually supply needs and necessities much easier to everybody else, reducing the work day. Now, this is an argument that has been made, the one I just mentioned, many times. And I think that while there there is some merit to it, it does ignore the fact that even as automation progresses, there's still a heavy reliance upon real living labor. And this real living labor is just uh, found overseas in Bangladesh or in, Thailand and China, among other places. So while sure, here, we might be able to reduce the working day to reduce the number of days of work during the week, but we have to be very careful that this doesn't rely upon intensified labor in other places on earth or just more exploitation of other workers in other places. And now that puts us here into part seven, titled The Revenues and Their Sources, And it's going to begin with chapter 48, titled The Trinity Formula. And sorry that I've cut across two parts here. It's just that I try to keep each episode around 40 minutes, and it just happened to work out this way. So Engels mentions that the three parts of this chapter were found scattered throughout Marx's manuscript. So I think it's important to just lay that out there. Uh, At this point in the book, these ideas aren't fully developed, they do feel quite preliminary and they aren't complete. But with that being said, they are still super important and very insightful. So the Trinity formula refers to the Trinity of the social production process, and that is comprised of capital, land, and labor, where capital yields profit, which is profit plus interest, land yields ground rent, and labor yields wages. Now, when I mentioned the Trinity formula, I stipulated or, or I qualified that capital yields profit plus interest. Because remember, interest is what is going to go to the landlord in terms of rent or to, or that's rent, that's something else, but maybe to uh, a bank or to a lender that you had to go to to actually buy your land or to buy your equipment or whatever, or even to pay yourself. Uh, as a capitalist, where some of what you earn has to go to you as though you lent it to yourself and capitalists go and spend spend this on yachts or for on trips to outer space, whatever they like to waste money on. So in its simplest terms, the Trinity formula refers to capital, land, and labor. However, capital doesn't exist out in the world. You You, you will never walk in the world and see capital there or you will, but it is only reserved for a specific social arrangement. So it is only the product of a specific social and economic arrangement. Likewise, land, as it exists under capitalism as being attached to a certain value or harboring a certain value does not really exist. So even the physiocrats who say that all value is really just in the land, and what the earth can yield submit to some extent already to some kind of capitalist logic in that they are associating an intrinsic value to things that don't have it. They are only ascribed an intrinsic value in a world that privatizes everything. And that sees everything as a source of additional profit as a source of capital and also land and earth hold very different meanings for very different people at very different times. And so it follows that rent isn't some kind of natural human necessity either because it is contingent upon capital, which is not, you know, it's fairy dust, which is contingent upon land as well and land intrinsically holding value, which is contingent upon capital. So it's just this Trinity formula that sets the stage for a specific social arrangement while also being conditioned by that arrangement so it necessitates that arrangement while being dependent upon it and they are all dependent upon one another and this is partly embedded in the term trinity in that they are they're without one you can't have the other two well actually that's a big claim put an asterisk there and cuz I don't think we get that exactly in Marx, I think it's pretty safe to say, but if anyone wants to take aim at that, I think that that would be fair. Now there are correlative or similar forms of these other elements outside of capital, like labor as being part of the Trinity formula that yields wages. Labor has existed all the time, everywhere you 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 always need labor whether it is to survive or to uh work for somebody else to earn some kind of surplus for them or whatever so we see some kind of element of it in in under slavery under uh feudalism and under capitalism plus all the other forms in between and while it would be it would be it's kind of a cardinal sin to invoke Hannah Arendt but this is one of her central theses as well is that labor underwrites the foundation or it sets the stage for all possible social interactions and is necessary before other needs other higher order needs through work and through uh, in the mind and action i think they are you need labor then work then action and i don't know if it's so neatly split like that like you you have to satisfy labor to have work, and but but in any case, she identifies the ways that labor is a necessary human element. Now, I see a lot of stuff about how labor or work, and of course, these things are never really elaborated on. But I see many hot takes on Twitter and whatnot about how under communism, work would cease to exist. And while I think that that there might there is some truth to that if we qualify that a certain kind of work will cease to exist, I'm not entirely sure that it would be possible to put an end to labor. And here I'm understanding work and labor is the same thing. Because even in a communist utopia, you need people working in order to produce things. Things can't just be made all through constant capital, through machines. You need people, and this is... Fundamental in Marx, you can't have an enterprise founded purely upon either labor or purely upon as as variable capital or purely upon machinery and raw materials as in constant capital. You need both of them. You need people to put things in motion. So that would mean that under communism, yes, there there should be an extreme reduction in the amount of work that is required, but exactly how much is required I think it's difficult to say, and Marx doesn't give that here, at least not in the three volumes of Capital. At no point does he say work only needs to be X in relation to a population of so and so a size, because you need uh, you need to feed all those people and supply them with houses. So I don't know. I-, I wonder if there is a formula out there to determine what is actually like necessary labor, how much labor is necessary. But in any case, I digress. Here he considers in a little bit more detail, and it's not fully drawn out, but he considers, again, the absurdity of associating an intrinsic value with the earth or with land. So the earth and anything from it is not in itself valuable. It's only valuable when labor has been attached to it. That is under the capitalist mind frame. So if you're just a a hunter-gatherer and you find some berries, those berries have no value. I mean, you're just putting them probably in your mouth. Uh, You aren't doing anything else with it. You aren't seeing what these things are actually worth in terms of value that can be exchanged. Value exists only in a world in which things can be exchanged. And that, according to the political economists before Marx, would be determined by the amount of labor that went into it. And Marx qualifies in the first volume of Capital that no, it's actually the socially necessary labor that goes into it, because otherwise, if we just say it's labor that goes into it, there'd be too many variations. One company is gonna make a shoe in X number of labor hours versus another one, and that'll skew the prices, and you won't be able to have uh, any kind of equilibrium or any kind of um, kind of natural market price. And it seems to me that even in a communist world where trade would still exist, because there would still be trade. I mean, some countries are able to furnish things for other countries that uh, other countries can't have. So, for example, um, some countries in more areas that are more <laughs> have deserts. I forget what it what the term for that is. Anyways, uh, they're going to need probably goods from other countries that don't exist in deserts or that don't exist on deserts. The difference, of course, would be that these goods are not brought to the market through exploitation. It is the workers that earn the entirety of that surplus value, scraping off a bit according to their needs and the needs of their community. Not for some capitalists to earn extra on top of uh, what they have already paid themselves and paid their enterprise. So this trade would need to occur with some acknowledgement or some way to quantify how much that trade is. Otherwise, it would just be like going back to pre-capitalist relations that he outlined earlier, where people were kind of fumbling around in the dark, not entirely sure how much anything was worth. They would just need to negotiate and try to maybe figure out some kind of equivalent. But if there is a disparagement between the two, then that is going to produce a situation in which one country is going to be able to earn a surplus by swindling the other one so for example if canada produces maple syrup that they want to sell to the united states for i don't know let's say for oranges just bear with me they're going to figure out that it takes 10 hours to let's just say 10 hours to supply all of the maple syrup that is required for all of the canada and then they can put in an extra hour and they get a little bit more that they're able to trade with the United States. And let's say that little bit more is one jug of maple syrup. And just don't don't bother me about these uh, silly, silly examples. Now let's say in the United States, it's the same thing. 10 hours to supply all of America with its orange needs. And then it'll work an extra hour on top of that to get uh, a ton of oranges. But what if those oranges, you know, maybe they are a little bit less than supplying all the needs of Canadians. Canada might be able to swindle the United States by saying that the amount of maple syrup that they got for an hour actually took them an hour and a half, or they can inflate the price. And what they could do with that is to say that, oh, because it took you the extra half an hour in order to earn what we needed, Canadians needed in oranges, then they are able to actually sell so much more maple syrup or so much less maple syrup for so much more money to uh, America in the forms of trade. And what that would do is would give Canada these oranges that are more valuable than the maple syrup that they gave to the United States. And then Canada could take those oranges and say, no, you know what, we're going to actually sell these somewhere else and earn a profit. Now, I know this is a silly example, but the point is that you'd still need some way to actually measure the value of certain things based upon the amount of hours that went into it, which would come out to living labor plus dead labor in terms of constant capital. But in any case, so the earth, <laughs> anything to go back, anything from it is not in itself valuable. It's only when social labor acts on it that it can be imbued with a value. However, this does not mean that the earth cannot be more or less useful. Of course, it can do many things to intensify the rate of value being extracted from real living labor so fertile land will yield more than infertile land with same labor and so the value of labor on worse land is higher because it is less productive so land can have an effect on labor to intensify it but it does not create labor it will just change the way that it is extracted and the speed at which it is extracted from laborers. Now economists don't see this distinction. They say, oh, value just has or sorry, land just has value. And this thought, he ends this thought without fully really digging into it. So vulgar economists are content with not understanding this trinity of capital, land, and rent. Capital, land, and rent. See, I, I've submitted to the vulgar economist thing. Capital, land, and labor. They just say silly things that, like, land or the earth is just use value, wages are exchange value, and capital is just value. What measures value? And if we go back many episodes, we can remember how the head of the Bank of England and other economists were saying things that, like, value is determined by the amount of uh, capital in circulation, or some silly nonsense like that. And of course, this is all hocus pocus. The earth has no intrinsic value. Wages are, do not represent exchange of value because the wages are actually a payment beneath the value that is created by labor power. And capital represents a value higher than it's worth because it is just a magic supplement taken from labor. And so it's all just hocus, po- hocus pocus. And so people are born into the system though, and they end up reproducing that system and it's not their fault. They They just are born into it they don't know anything else and so these relations between capital land and labor are just naturalized and the people who represent them are just naturalized that is the way that they are supposed to act where the capitalist is the personification of capital the wage laborer is the personification of uh wage labor the worker I should say and the landowner is the personification of rent and two of these groups Capitalists and landowners are largely unproductive. It is the laborers that are creating the value. And as more and more surplus value is extracted, more and more people can enter these ranks while still concentrating this wealth into this domain of unproductive activities. So, surplus value provides a glimpse of a possibility for a future. It shows that necessary labor time can be minimized while continually serving the needs of the people. And this just goes back to the previous idea, like if our knowledges, if our extra uh, surplus value was put to actually helping people, then things could improve. So I want to read a little section here, and we're approaching the end, but I just want to read this out. So this realm of natural necessity expands with his development because he needs uh, his his needs do too. But the productive forces to satisfy these expand at the same time. Freedom in this sphere can consist only in this, that socialized man. Man, the associated producers, govern the human metabolism with nature in a rational way, bringing it under their collective control instead of being dominated by it as a blind power, accomplishing it with the least expenditure of energy and in conditions most worthy and appropriate for their human nature but this always remains the realm of necessity the true realm of freedom the development of human powers as an end in itself begins beyond it though it can only flourish with this realm of necessity as its basis the reduction of the working day is the basic prerequisite and i'm reading this this section i read this because it is another one of those illustrations of a pre of a post-capitalist world where he identifies that just satisfying the basic needs is the prerequisite. Reducing labor time is a prerequisite to what he calls the true realm of freedom, the development of human powers as an end in itself. And what that means, I mean, we'll leave that up to you to decide, but it's powerful, nevertheless. So this would mean that unproductive laborers would go away. Well, really, landlords would go away because there are still unproductive workers who don't create value yet are still necessary. So like teaching or like uh, being, being a doctor, doctors aren't creating things that are sold to add to the GDP, at least not always, but they are necessary nevertheless. And the whole system, it works in reverse if we look at this Trinity one more time, where capitalists, landlords, and laborers organized in such a way that the capitalist pays themselves first, then the landlord, then the workers, where actually value originates the other way around. uh, Workers create value, the capitalist pays themselves from that value, and then they pay the landlord. And it just, you know, capitalism just tries to hide this fact by saying that, no, it is uh, within, as I've mentioned time and time again, it is only within the circulation sphere Only within exchange, that value is created or some other nonsense like that. And yeah, that'll wrap this penultimate episode up here. And next time we're gonna get into episode 10, which is gonna go from chapter 49 of part seven all the way to the end, including Engels' supplementary uh, remarks. So yeah, anyone who made it this far, (laughs) I'm very impressed. And uh, yeah, Uh, if you like what I did, like, share, subscribe. You can tell your friends, they might get a kick out of it. If you can leave a review on a platform like a podcast platform, that would help me out a lot. And uh, yeah, on that note, take care.